There was a French mathematician named Blaise Pascal. He, he lived in the 17th century. If you've ever used a calculator, if you've ever um, used the scientific method, created a hypothesis, tried to prove it, to some degree you're indebted to Blaise Pascal. You know, a lot of his work was around the idea of a vacuum. Aristotle's kind of theory of vacuums that nature resists a vacuum. And so wherever, there, there, there is no such thing as empty space, right? There, there is no such thing as a void. Something will always fill it, right? The, you know, if you've seen this with water, right? If, there's, if you open up a spot and there's water nearby, water will flow into the empty space. And certainly this is happening all the time with air. You know, if you open up a door, air will rush from one room to another. Their nature resists a vacuum. It was a big part of Pascal's life and his research. He was also a Christian though. And I can just see him thinking about vacuums and thinking about how vacuums exist in nature and realizing that actually the human heart is a vacuum. He famously said there, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being, in the heart of every man. Now, that's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thing to think about tonight, that our hearts are a vacuum. You, you will fill your heart. You, you will fill your heart with something, something that makes you feel significant, something that makes you feel satisfied, something that makes you feel justified. I am somebody. I know I'm somebody because of this. I, I know that my life matters. I know that I have value and worth because of this or that. There's a, your heart's a vacuum. You know, I'm parenting uh, rising middle schoolers, a rising middle schooler, and, uh, you know, one of the first things that we put in our heart, we try to fill our heart with, is a sense of popularity, right? I'm liked. I have a friend group. People like me. I have an identity, right? It's, it's interesting to watch a child kind of form this little sense of an identity. Well, I'm like this or I'm like that. And it's as cliche as it is. I mean, as cliche as it is, it's just what we do. Uh, we, we have to grab hold of this sense of like, well, this is who I am, I have a sense of identity. Uh, that's one of the first things we do to try to fill our <laughs> heart vacuum with a sense of popularity. Then, then there's a, achievement comes along, right? And we say, well, I know that I'm special because I've done this. I, you know, I went to this school or I got this internship or I got this job. I did these things. I, I got promoted. I achieved. Of course, relationships are a big part of our life. You know, I'm loved. I have a family. I have this. I have that. I know that my, my life has work. My, my life has worth. Our security comes along eventually, you know. When you're young, most of the folks in this room, very young, you're not thinking a lot about your retirement account. But those that are like 60, they are. They're like, well, do we have enough? Are we secure? Are we safe? Am I going to be secure? You know, I don't want to get in my rope here. I don't want to not have this. The heart does this, right? It, it's a vacuum. It, we're always filling our heart with something that will give us a sense of satisfaction. 
But Pascal says that no created thing can rightly fill the, the vacuum because the vacuum itself is God-shaped. It's an interesting idea there. It's an interesting word. It's a God-shaped vacuum. So anything else that you try to shove up in your heart or that you suck up into your heart to use kind of the vacuum illustration, it, it won't fit right. It doesn't, it, it'll always leave you feeling like you need a little more. It'll leave you feeling anxious. It'll leave you feeling unsatisfied eventually. And of course it does. This is only God that can rightly fill the vacuum. It's a God-shaped vacuum. And what Pascal was trying to say, and what I certainly want to say to you tonight, is that, that I hope you get that. Your heart was made for God. Your heart was made by God. Your heart was made for God. Your life was made for God. You're only going to be satisfied. You're, 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 you only work right when you know God. And what Pascal says is the only way to know God is through Jesus. Jesus has made God the creator known. Now, here's the deal, guys. I'm going to guess we're at a good Friday service. It's Friday night. I'm going to guess most of you cognitively believe that. You agree with Pascal. I mean, cognitively. You, you agree. You're like, yeah, okay, yeah, my, I'm made for God. I'm made for God. I can only be satisfied in God. We cognitively agree with that. Not, not all of you. Some of you, I'm sure, are here, and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. And that's okay. But most of us, at least cognitively, we, we agree with these things. Well, then why, why do so many of us still struggle with fear and anxiety and depression and, and, and this sense of dissatisfaction and restlessness in life? Why? You know, why, why do we still chase after all these things? I mean, why do we still believe that all these other things that we try to fill our hearts with will actually satisfy us? Why don't we just believe that God will satisfy? Why don't we take hold of the fact that we can know God, that he's revealed himself in Jesus? Why do we keep trying to fill our hearts with this? And, and the reason is, and, and here's what it is. The reason is, is we're either believing in the wrong God, right? We, we've either believed in some notion of God that's not true, or we're we're not believing in God rightly. We, we lack faith. We lack a sense of faith. We, we, we lack the ability to, to take hold of this truth. And so I'm glad you're here. I mean, what a better thing could we do then than to be here and, and to be meditating on these things and to be meditating on, on this, on this night especially, on the fact that we are loved by God and that he desired to make himself known to us, that he's demonstrated and manifest his love to us through the cross of Jesus. You know, we, we've been in this little series, we're looking at these phrases that Jesus said when he was on the cross. And so we've looked at several of them. I thirst and woman behold thy son, father forgive them. But the ones that we're gonna look at, at this weekend, I, I believe are the most profound on Sunday, we're going to look at the phrase of Jesus, it is finished, that he completed the work of salvation, that he completed this reconciling work between us and God. But tonight, this incredibly powerful passage, this incredibly powerful idea, and Chris just read it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's what's so interesting about this passage, is that Jesus it's recorded both in Mark, Chris read Mark. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew. What's so interesting about this is that you don't see this that often. There's a couple of places in Scripture where you see it. But in, the, in, in your English translation, you will read this passage in English, but you'll also read it in the Aramaic. 
Now you'll read it in English. That means that it was originally written in Greek. It's been translated into English. But you'll also read it in Aramaic. Now, why didn't they translate it? Well, because it wasn't translated into Greek. The, the gospel writers wrote it in Aramaic. Even though they were writing their gospel in Greek, they wanted to grab a hold of, there's something about these words. They wanted to grab hold of the potency of them. This is Jesus crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. There was something that they would never forget about those words that Jesus had cried out. There was something so shocking, so daunting, so striking to them about that statement. So what does that mean? What does it mean to us? And how is it going to help us think about this idea of our soul being filled rightly by God, this God-shaped vacuum being filled by God? So I want to look at this idea tonight in, in just the two phrases, my God, my God, and then why have you forsaken me? We got to start with my God, my God, because if, if we want to think rightly about God, we have to know God. We have to be talking about the same God. And I think this is a great night for us to meditate on just the nature of God. And so where do you begin? Well, I mean, one place to begin is just the eternality of God that God is eternal, that, that he never began, that he always is, right? This is something that we, we've been talking about at the D's house. Uh, where did God come from, right? Well, who was before God or how did God get his start? And of course, that's a good question. And that's a question that I think all of us in our, the sense of our, you know, minds that are so finite that we would ask, but of course, the answer to the question is, no, God is. God is. God exists. He didn't begin. He exists. He existed. In fact, everything that exists, exists from God. God alone exists, and he's always existed, and he's always existed as this relational God. One of the things that we know to be true of God is that he is a three-person God, the first person, the second person, and the third person of the Trinity have existed. Now, God's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but these three persons of the Godhead have existed for all time together. The church fathers talked about God as uh, the perichoresis. I love this idea, the perichoresis. And, and, and that's translated to mean the great dance, the great dance. You ever see people dancing? Now I'm talking about good dancing. Okay, now I've seen some people, I've seen some of you dance. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that really know how to dance, okay? And when you see people that can really dance, there's two things happening. They're in rhythm with one another, you know, if it's two people dancing or if it's a group of people dancing, they're, they're all in rhythm with one another and they're in rhythm with the music that they're dancing to, right? They're in rhythm with one another and they're in rhythm with the music that they're dancing to. And when you see dancing like that, it doesn't look like it's a bunch of, you can tell that there's separate persons or separate people in the dancing, but it's all one thing. It doesn't look disjointed. It doesn't look dis, dis, dysfunctional. It doesn't look Destructured. It's, it's one movement. It's one idea. That's the periochorus. That's what the church fathers were getting at. The, the, the great dance. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They've existed in such harmony and beauty with one another for all time. It's the periochorus. It's the perichoresis, rather. It's the perichoresis that, that 
God is, exists in this great dance. There's, God exists in love. God exists in harmony. There's, there's no disjuncture. There's no dysfunction. That's why we believe in this three-person, one God. And of course, the, the harmony and love and relationship and beauty that God has always existed in began to have this overflow of creation. So of course, we have to consider how any of this is here, the, the creative nature of God, that God began to create that everything that, we, that you've ever known is from him and through him and to him. We read this in Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. <laughs> that everything is created from God, that everything that exists exists through God, and that everything exists exists for God. It's to God. Its purpose is God. That's why your heart is only satisfied in God. That's why Augustine said, my soul is restless until it rests in thee. The purpose of all creation is God. God is over everything. Is that the God that you believe in? And if God is supreme in his creativity, then he's supreme in his power. He has authority over everything. Everything is under his command. The Bible says that he spoke all things into existence. And what that means is, is that everything that exists, exists by the command of God. It exists by the word of God, who has authority over all things. And everything in all of creation is a little bit, it's a reflection of God. It instructs us about God, the universe. We can't measure it. We can't measure it. You know, I, I think I've read somewhere something like 95 trillion light years. That's just a made-up number, okay? When you're getting to 95 trillion light years, you're just throwing numbers out there. They don't know how big the universe is. The universe is ever expanding. We can't measure the universe. We can't get our hands around how, that's an estimate. We can't get our hands around how big the universe is. It's immeasurable. Why? Well, that that instructs us. That that tells us something about God, that God is immeasurable, that that we can't get our heads around him, that we can't measure him. And if you think about creation, I mean, everything, it tells a little story about God. I mean, the, the atom, I mean, think about the atom. You know that there are seven octillion atoms in your body? So that's a seven with 27 zeros behind it. Seven octillion atoms just in your one little human body right here. Just looking at seven octillion atoms after seven octillion atoms. And every atom has so much power. I mean, just think about the force of you know, atomic fission or atomic fusion. I mean, just think about the force of an atom and every atom has so much order. The proton, neutron, electron, they all exist. Three parts, right? Isn't that interesting? Three parts, they all exist in this perfect harmony to hold the atom together so it doesn't go flying off and create chaos everywhere. And there's seven octillion of them just in your little body. And all of that speaks something about the, the creative nature and power of God. And of course, God is supreme in his wisdom. I mean, he knows everything. He knows everything. God knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that will happen. He knows everything that is happening. He knows everything. This is, uh, theologians talk about this, the middle knowledge of God, if you've read anything about this. But God knows everything that could happen. I mean, every possibility. You know, if I would step this way versus this way, how would that change the dynamics of the night? I don't know. But God knows. He knows everything. 
He, he knows everything. I mean, his, his knowledge makes all of the information that exists on the inter- internet look like nothing because he knows everything that has ever happened or could happen or will happen. That's why we say God is all wise. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is having the best perspective. It's having the best perspective. Who, who's the most wise? It's the person who can see the full picture, right? And God knows everything. No one has a greater respect than him. And so why wouldn't we trust him? Why would we ever forsake his way? Why, why would we ever not listen to his wisdom? And he's not only supreme in his eternality and creativity and power and wisdom, he's, cre- he's supreme in his purposes. His purposes are supreme. His purposes are right. God is achieving a great purpose that ultimately is his glory and the glory of his children, <laughs> the glory of those he loves. That is God's great purpose. That's, that's what God is after. There is a great end in the designs and plans of God. He is supreme in his purposes. Now, this is one of the great problems of a secular worldview. Now, I said most of the people here tonight probably agree that our hearts are filled with God. Some of you may walk in here and you're just exploring Christianity on Easter weekend. That's a good thing to do. But here's it's the great problem of the secular humanistic worldview is there's no telos, there's no end, there's no purpose. If all the world is, is this chance combination of matter and time, well, then the universe is meaningless. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even though that some people believe that, they believe that the universe is meaningless, they believe that their own life actually has meaning. (laughs) Now, that actually takes a lot of arrogance And actually, Nietzsche, who didn't believe in God, famously said, God is dead. You know what Nietzsche said about people like that? And I'll say this to you. He said, you're a coward. Nietzsche said, if you you, you accept that there is no God, but yet somehow believe that your own life has meaning, you are a coward. Because you want all the freedom. This is Nietzsche. This is not me. This is Nietzsche. You want all the freedom of not believing in God, because if you don't believe in God, you're not accountable to anything. You want all the freedom of meaninglessness without any of the responsibility of meaninglessness. If there is no God, then you are subject to whoever the most powerful person in the room is or whatever the most powerful force is. You can't say that's wrong or that's right. You don't have the freedom to do that. You, don't have, you, 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 have to, you can't do that because there is no right and wrong. There is no telos. There is no end. There is no... God, you can't pray at a funeral to try to comfort yourself. You can't send good thoughts like you want to. All that stuff's meaningless. If the universe is meaningless, then by definition, your life is necessarily, this is Nietzsche, meaningless. And so you either believe that or you're a coward. But the, the truth of the matter is, is there, <laughs> there is, your life does have meaning. You, you know your life has meaning. You know your life has meaning. And that is one of the reasons that you should know that there is a God who creates meaning and purpose. He's supreme in his purposes. His purposes are our purposes. His his purposes are the great purpose. He is supreme in his purpose. Are you living for his purposes? And see, God is also, and, and we have to accept this, he's supreme in his eternality, creativity, wisdom, and, and purpose, but he's also supreme in his wrath. God is a great defender of his own glory. I want you to hear that. And when his his glory 
When his ways, when his order, when his created order is challenged, he is a great defender of that. We read in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. God is supreme in his wrath. His justice is so perfect. He is such a God of justice. That's another thing. We, We all... We all want justice, we just don't want to judge. Well, I want justice too. We all want justice, and there is a judge. There is one who is a supreme orderer who will reorder all things. But of course, the good news is, and the good news of tonight is God is also supreme in his love. There is no one more capable of love than God. God has existed in love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the great dance. God has existed in love. The reason we don't say God is loving, the reason we say God is love is because the nature, the the ontological nature of the Trinity, this three-person, one-godness exists because God exists in love. God is love. And God has demonstrated the great overflow of his love to us in this, that while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, while we were separated from God, God sent Jesus to die for us. God sent Jesus to redeem us. God sent Jesus to identify with us. And this brings us to the second part. We've looked at my God, my God, who God is, the nature of God, but why have you forsaken me? And one of the amazing things that, that we believe as Christians is that Jesus came, the second person in the Trinity came to actually be a human being. It's an amazing thing to believe, really. Jesus can fully identify with us. He, he can identify with even at the most basic level. He was, he was a baby. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as we are. I mean, just imagine that. This is God being tempted. God, the great order. God, the all good, enduring the temptation of humanity. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, of course, he never sinned. When, when Jesus came as a human being, even though he fully lived as a human being, he can totally identify with us, he always walked he always walked with his father. He, he walked in the delight of God. He, he, he was the better Adam, is what we say. The, the better man. We were made for God. We were made to delight in God. We didn't. Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived. He always delighted in his father's way. He, he recognized the supremacy of his father's eternality and the supremacy of his father's power and the supremacy of his father's creativity and the supremacy of his father's wisdom and the supremacy of his father's uh, uh, order and wrath and, and the supremacy of his father's purpose and everything else. And he always lived to those ends. That's why he delighted in his father's word. That's why he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He he understood, even though he was human, he understood the nature of these things. But he died. And why did he die? What is happening on the cross? The righteous one dies. The righteous one is yelling out to his father that he had only known perfect harmony with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And don't you see why? We had forsaken God. We were made for God, and we sinned. We, we forsook God. We, we went after our own wisdom, our own order, our own way, our own sense of life outside of God. We had forsaken God, and so the one that never forsook God was forsaken so that we could be brought in. Don't you see what's happening here on the cross? 
On Sunday, if you were here, we talked about the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah, the prophet, Obadiah, Jeremiah, they use this illustration. Jesus, who forever, the perichoresis, had known harmony with his father. I mean, for all of eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, first person, second person, third person of the Trinity had perfect harmony with one another, except for the moment that Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. And in that moment, he took our place. As the old song says, he took our sins. He took our sorrows. He made them his very own. He, he bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You know, the prophet Isaiah says it this way. Hear these words. Surely he has borne, he took on our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But it's as if Isaiah is saying, and again, this is 700 plus years before Jesus came, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by these wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see what's happening here? Jesus identified with you. Jesus identified with me. He was pierced for our transgressions. It was our griefs that he bore on the cross. He, Jesus, who had only known righteousness and unity with his father, was forsaken by his father so that you and I would never have to be. He was put out by his father so that you and I could be brought in. He, the beloved child of God, was cursed so that we could be called the children of God. And I want you to hear this. You know, Christianity is so genuine and you may not think that. You may say, well, I know some Christians that aren't. I'm not saying all Christians are genuine, but Christianity, the Christianity of Jesus is so genuine. It's so pure. It's so, it's so raw. If this is true, if this is true, then, then you don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to get your act together to experience the love of God. In fact, if this is true, you can actually experience the depth of God's love most fully when you're at your most vulnerable place when you're in the depths of your sin. I want you to hear this. Until you really know God, until you really get a right vision of God, until you really grab a hold of how supreme and wonderful and big and great God is, until you can tell you, until you can just grab that, even just grab it a little bit, until you can grab, until you know God, until you really get your head around how great God is, then you'll, you'll never be able to get your head around how deep your sin is. And, and what an offense it is to sin against a God like that. And until you get your head around how great God is, and until you get your head around how deep your sin is, then you'll never be able to get your head around how much deeper his mercy is and how much greater his love is. That Jesus, second person of the Trinity, the one who lived in perfect unity with God forever, would be put out so that you could be brought in. That he who had only known purity and righteousness would take on the worst thing you've ever done. And not just the worst thing you've ever done, but everything that you've ever done. Took all your griefs and all your sorrows. 
And that he would be struck down, that he would be crushed for our iniquities. They would, they would be wounded so that we and him could be healed. Don't you see what this day is all about? That's why Christians can call this thing that's the most horrible thing. I mean, here's Jesus, the son of God dying. Yet we can say this is a good day because it's by this day that we have hope. It's by this day that we can have life. The prophet goes on, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God would love you so much. The father would love you so much to be willing to crush his own son so that you could come in to his love, so that you could know God's love, so you could be a child of God. The prophet goes on, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Don't you hear, don't you hear what this just says? that the righteous one will make the many to be counted righteous. The righteous one will make the many to be counted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. I don't know where you're coming from tonight. I have no idea. I don't know what you're trusting in tonight. I don't know what you've done. But here's what I know. The human soul has a God-shaped vacuum. And it's only going to be satisfied when you know God. When you know God. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy your soul. And you're going to fill it. You know, tonight, you might be filling, you, might be, you may have walked in here, and you had a little sense of fulfillment because you closed the big deal today. You have a little sense of fulfillment because you went on a really great date last night, and you might get date number four. You may have a little sense of fulfillment because your kids just got into this great school and you're like, you know what? My life's okay. I'm doing okay. I have a sense of fulfillment. And I'm just going to tell you, all of that stuff will be short-lived. All of that stuff will lead you anxious and protective. All of that stuff will, will make you less generous and less giving because if you're living for all that stuff, you'll grab a hold of it as hard as you can and you won't let it go. And you'll live a very self centered, or worse, self-righteous life. Where the reason things are so good is because you're really important. Look what you've done. Or you're really good. Look how good you are. And your soul will never rest. Because your soul will only rest when the God-shaped vacuum is filled, when, when you can know God. But the problem with that is our sin. We have offended God. We haven't lived for God. We've ignored God. We try to fill our souls with all these other things. But Jesus came, the righteous, and he gave himself for the unrighteous. Jesus came, the, the righteous, so that the many unrighteous might be counted righteous. Look, I know you struggle to believe this, and I'm going to be honest, like I do too. There's days that I, that I seek satisfaction as much as I know this, as much as I preach this. There's days that I seek satisfaction in other things that I know won't satisfy me. But that's why this weekend is so great. This is Easter. This is this weekend. Let's fill our souls tonight with this truth that we can rest in the Lord, that we can, we can find satisfaction in the Lord that God has called us to himself in Christ. 
And so tonight, let's together live by faith in this. Let's fill our souls in this. Let's live by faith tonight. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I don't know exactly where you're coming from tonight, but I just want to say this. You know, wherever you're coming from, if you'll turn from your sin, if you'll turn from your sin, if you'll look to Christ, if you'll believe that it's, it's not your righteousness, it's not anything good that you've done that, that makes you right before God, but it's actually God's mercy and love that he's extended to you. This very mercy and love that we celebrate on tonight in particular, if you just look to him tonight, you'll be saved. You'll, you'll find that rest in him. And you know what? You know, maybe your soul's gotten sidetracked and you've started trying to fill it up with other things. Look, repent and turn tonight. Repent and turn. Let's believe this tonight. Let's look to Jesus tonight. Let's look to him every day of our lives. Let's drink from this endless well. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by anything created thing. It can only be satisfied by God the creator made known through Jesus. And God the creator, even though we have failed him, has made himself known to us, not just as creator, but also as savior. The one who has made a way for our salvation, that we can know him and love him. God the creator made known through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we walk in here tonight, men and women, having filled our souls with all these things. Yet there's a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. It cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by you, God. And because of the gospel, because of what we celebrate tonight, we have confidence that we can know you, that we can be filled by you. Because Jesus was put out, we can be brought in. We, we look to the cross tonight, Lord. We look to the cross. It's our only plea. It's the only thing we can cling to, Lord. We have no righteousness, Lord, to stand before you. We have no accomplishment that can satisfy our souls. All we have there's nothing in our hands that we can bring. It's only to the cross that we can cling. But Lord, if we have the cross, if we have Jesus, we have everything. We are called your sons and daughters, invited to live with you in life eternal, invited to be citizens of your kingdom where all is made right and new, invited to life, Lord, and rest and peace we have Jesus, we have it all. We're given an inheritance, an imperishable inheritance. If we have Jesus, we have it all. Help us to believe these things tonight, Lord. May we turn from all of the false things that we so quickly give ourselves to. And may we turn fully to you through your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray.